1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Stuart Ellis-Gorman about his book titled The Medieval Crossbow, A Weapon Fit to Kill a King, published by Pen and Sword in 2022. Uh, This is a really fascinating book that looks at, as the title suggests, the crossbow, an iconic weapon of the Middle Ages, and yet also one that doesn't seem to have a lot of academic... Study and interest in it, um, which personally I found quite surprising. So I was really glad to read this book that kind of rectifies that situation and brings scholarship on the crossbow into the 21st century. Um, And I'm very pleased to welcome you, Stuart, to the podcast to talk about it.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Could you start off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write the book?
0: Yeah. So uh, I'm originally from America. I grew up in central Virginia, but then I did my Undergrad and PhD in Trinity College in Dublin. I've been living in Ireland for about 15 years. This October, and so I came to this. I have the kind of fascination with medieval weapons and armor, born of a childhood of Lord of the Rings and Dungeons and Dragons. And when I was doing my undergrad um, dissertation, I looked at doing kind of medieval armor and the origins of plate armor and all of that. And, and through that process, I discovered this book called The Knight in the Blast Furnace by Alan Williams which is this massive and phenomenal tome that's like 700 pages long and was better than anything I would ever write on that subject, no matter how long I worked on it. So I was like, this is great, but also this is a total dead end. So when I went on to do my PhD, I thought, well, I should look at doing maybe something to do with the attack on armor. because I kind of found that intriguing. And then I thought I should do ranged weaponry. And my original project idea was to look at bows and crossbows around the time of the introduction of guns, and try and see to what extent we could, like you could monitor the impact that guns had on the design of bows and crossbows if they stayed as they were and just all coexisted, or if there was a shift as personal firearms became more common in kind of the mid to late 15th century and then into the early 16th. And so, after about a year of that, we sat, my supervisor and I sat down and we said, okay, this is too big. This is not actually feasible. We have to cut this down. So, I went, just looked at bows and crossbows. And it was when I was doing the crossbows part of that that I kind of found that there's just, there wasn't anything there in terms of scholarship. Like it was, a lot of it was very old. Uh, It wasn't very widely researched, particularly coming off having just been reading about longbows, which there's just tons of scholarship on. There's so much information on longbows, so many interesting scholarly contributions. Just the work on things like the Mary Rose bows alone is phenomenal and in-depth, and there's just nothing there for crossbows. So that was that kind of exciting moment and terrifying moment you have when you're kind of researching something where you're like, here is a niche, like no one's doing this, but also like the guardrails are gone now. You know, I just have to figure it out. There's no kind of, you know, scholarship to guide my questions. It's just vast and unknowable. So that's where I got started on it. And I've just kind of been working away at it ever since I finished my PhD in 2016 and just took a break for a while I was pretty pretty exhausted Went and got kind of a government job and took a break and then I picked the ideal time of early 2020 to pitch a book where I was going to finally write this book I've been meaning to write a new introductory history to the crossbow to kind of bridge the gap that I'd felt when I'd started this research about it this is the book I would have loved to have read at the start of my PhD you know that would have really set me on a good course and provided me with a lot of avenues for questions that are unanswered and source material and, and the more available scholarship that's kind of how I ended up here
1: <laughs> well that's a good story and I think for a lot of us quite relatable to kind of start off with something and go oh wait no this is really cool but way too big all right fine what can I do instead and kind of figure that out from there um, and it's cool that it's resulted in uh, quite an interesting book that really does you have found a niche that needed to be filled um so i'd love to kind of do a mini tour i suppose of that niche through your book uh, we're obviously not going to be able to go into all the detail that the book does but hopefully we can give sort of a flavor of it um and so we'll primarily well i was going to say we're going to do this chronologically but i have a bunch of questions so we'll sort of see how reliably chronological i end up being um but the obvious starting point is with kind of where do medieval european crossbows come from um and the sort of myth that I was vaguely familiar with was like, oh yeah, they come from China. There's some sort of connection with like Chinese crossbows first. Um, but given that you are the actual expert on this, to what extent can we be confident that European crossbows are or were derived from Chinese ones?
0: So this is, I've kind of gone back and forth quite a bit over my career on, on this question. So there's no disputing that the oldest crossbows are Chinese. So the earliest evidence of crossbows is, is definitively that they're a Chinese weapon. Um, They're present from the Han Dynasty and earlier, so kind of at least 6th century BC, possibly even earlier. And there's tons of evidence. There's lots of textual evidence. There's lots of archaeological evidence. Like, it's it's bountiful and makes me deeply jealous working on, like, a European framework of just how much stuff they have. Uh, The question becomes really that what we don't have is good archaeological evidence in Europe, and that's where the, the kind of crux of this issue arises. We have basically no evidence of crossbows in Europe until Vegetius is writing in the 4th century AD, a Roman military writer that anyone who's familiar with medieval military history will know, because they love him. He kind of makes some fairly oblique references to what seem to be probably crossbows. I have seen some scholars suggest that he just meant small ballista and not actually crossbows, so there is some contention there, but crossbows is kind of the predominant theory. But that's just a few text references. And then we have some artistic depictions in the tenth, in the fourth, fifth, and eighth centuries kind of around then. Uh, one of them there's a two Romo, Roman Romo Gallo Gallo-Roman uh, reliefs that show co- probably crossbows. Uh, and one of them is a really nice date because we dug it up. And then one of them they like found in a cellar in the 18th century. So the Providence is a mess, but it looks like the other ones. So we kind of date them close together. The issue is that this is really limited. And then when we get to the sort of 11th, 12th, 13th century, when we start to get what we think of as European crossbows, they're very different in design to Chinese crossbows, which leaves us open with this question of, is this a completely different weapon that, well, not completely different, it's still crossbow, but is this a fundamentally different design? That means it probably was invented separately because you, know, you put a bow on a stick isn't necessarily the most revolutionary piece of tech to come up with or is this just what you know a thousand years worth of development looks like and we're missing the the history and think I think one of the things we're really missing is if we found some archaeological evidence of Chinese style crossbows in Europe which we still could in theory that would really change our understanding or if we found earlier European style crossbows because we don't really know is what do crossbows look like Around the Roman era, when Vegetius is writing, or even before, uh, Joseph Needham and his colleagues, who write these very phenomenal works on Chinese technology, have shown that you know the appearance in Vegetius roughly aligns with a good period of contact between Rome and China. So there's a decent, you know, best case theory that that's when it comes over, and that all kind of like lines up. But it's correlation basically. We don't have really hard evidence, and To kind of get to the triggers is really where this comes in. So the Chinese trigger is very distinct. It's made of bronze, which is why it survives so well. It kind of resembles a very simple door latch that holds the string, and then you you release the you pull it back to release it. And then the European crossbows used what's called a rolling nut trigger, which has a a piece of antler usually that's carved into a cylinder with two hooks that stick up. That's put in kind of the middle of the crossbow. And then there's a large metal trigger that's usually shaped roughly like an elongated Z. So we just call it a Z trigger that puts pressure on the nut and stops it from rotating under pressure from the string. So these triggers work quite differently. They're quite distinct. Uh, the nuts part, because antlers of bone, it survives quite well. We have we have examples, at least from in Scotland, I think from 9th century, maybe some earlier ones. And there's we kind of find them all over the place. Uh, so if we found either clear evidence of nuts for crossbows in a Roman context or ha- like the kind of Han style uh, bronze Chinese triggers. I think that would really push us one way or the other, but for the moment I kind of lean towards the Chinese origin just because it, that lines up a little bit better. There's kind of, there is a clear, the crossbow is clearly there and we don't have a very good evidence. We have kind of the, a few little weird things like the gastrophetes in ancient Greece, which kind of is like a crossbow, but is kind of distinct and is very obscure. So I lean towards Chinese origin, but if you ask me again in five years, it's very possible that I would have a different answer. I think it's a great opportunity for new discovery uh, to, to open our eyes on, on how that went.
1: That would be absolutely fascinating. Well, that sounds like definitely the best guess for now, um, which I think is a really helpful kind of place to be and also to know kind of why it's a guess. Um, so thank you for explaining that. And I'd love to then kind of ex- build on sort of what you've already been talking about, right? The, the different pieces of the crossbow and how um, we can learn a lot about the timing, about the location, et cetera, from kind of understanding these different pieces um, and what they're made out of. And I was particularly interested to read in the book that some of the aspects of a crossbow uh, seem to have changed like very, very little over time. And some of them have changed a lot more or have a lot more variation. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of, uh, I under, I realize maybe describing all the parts of a crossbow might be difficult, um, but if you could give us something of a sort of synopsis of uh, kind of what were the different sorts of materials that were used to make them and kind of which bits changed a lot or varied a lot and which bits were you know pretty consistent.
0: Yeah. So one of the things, that the kind of rolling nut trigger I described, that seems to have been fairly consistent in the Middle Ages. As you get to the 15th, late 15th century and then early in, into the early modern period, we start to see more complicated triggers, um, which mostly are uh, attempting to solve the core problem with this trigger, which is that the the pull you have to do to release that trigger to lift the lever, because it's just a simple lever, is quite hard. So there's a lot of solutions that come in to kind of try and simplify that, because if you do a, a big jerk at the end of your crossbow, it might throw. It's going to throw off your aim. You know, you want it to be a clean shot. And so there's a lot of work in the early modern period, particularly when we see it primarily being a target shooting weapon. They put, start putting in lots more complex triggers, various intersteps to make to kind of make the it an easier mechanism. But then these are also slightly more fragile, more prone to breaking, and they're not really suitable to you know taking out on a campaign for war for the most part. Now. That was the main view. I actually had an email exchange this week with some ice scholar who works in Macedonia who may have dug up an example of one of these much more sophisticated crossbows in the 14th century, which, if that pans out, would pretty fundamentally change our understanding of when that change started, which would be very interesting. So I'm it's kind of one of these things where it's always a little bit in flux. Uh, the other piece that doesn't really change is the main stock, sometimes also called the tiller, that you put all of the, you attach all the crossbow bits to, it changes aesthetically quite a bit. I mean, there's there's lots of artwork done on them, but the main kind of design of it stays pretty consistent throughout the Middle Ages. In the early modern era, you start to see some specialization, particularly in Flanders. They develop these, basically like a big rest. It, it, a big part sticks down from the front. It looks kind of like the bottom of a stool that you've attached to the front of your crossbow, and it's because they shoot from tables. So if you imagine, like, you know, if you're in the movie, the sniper's always lying down with the little legs for his rifle, it's the, like, fancy Flemish crossbow equivalent of that for your really intense target shooting. But that's competitive target shooting. It's not for war, and it comes much later. The Middle Ages stocks are pretty consistent. There's there's minor variations, but that's, that doesn't change a whole lot. What changes a lot are your types of bow, and within that, the wooden bows seem to be fairly standard. They're 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 U for the most part which is the same bow used or same wood used for longbows and they're very much short compact longbows there's a lot of overlap in how they're designed with how longbows were built and that seems to stay fairly constant now we don't have a ton of evidence because we only have you know a handful of medieval uh wooden crossbow bows that have survived much like with longbows, you know, wood doesn't survive very well, so there's very little evidence for it. So we we are kind of, you know, extrapolating quite a bit. But our understanding is that that seems to have been fairly consistent throughout the Middle Ages and interestingly fairly popular throughout the Middle Ages an older philosophy uh most evident in someone like Ralph Payne Galway whose book on the crossbow was published in 1903 and is still one of the most widely available histories and is actually pretty good for a book written first in 1903. Uh he kind of used it as a linear progression. So that the idea that wood was phased out, but we have clear evidence that people are still buying wooden crossbows in the 15th century. They remain very popular. They're very cheap. They're very reliable. So it's kind of a, it's not broken. Don't fix it. We found the working one and maybe there was a lot of variation in the early middle ages that we don't have archeological evidence for. And then by the time we get to what we know, it's like, this is the one you want Uh, for composite crossbows from an outside view, the composite bow is very similar looking. Uh, so if you just look at them, you know, from the outside, it's they don't look like they change very much, but actually there's a huge variation in how they're constructed. So a composite bow is made of multiple materials, it generally means a bow made of horn, wood, and sinew. The classic composite bow, think of like the Mongol horse archer's bow, uh, is made with a, it's a wooden core, it has horn along the back of the bow, and make sure I get my bow parts right, and then the other side of the bow, it's has sinew. So the, the idea is when you pull back, you compress the horn, it generates more power and the sinew provides extra elasticity, which provides, which holds the bow together better, and also generates more power. Composite crossbows are much more of a mess. The way they, their cores are constructed is wildly inconsistent from the few that we've, some museum collections have cut them open. If they just had a, sole, a bow that was too badly damaged, they cut it into sections so you could see what was in it. And we have other ones where they're just open so you can see them and they're, I think that's an area where we really don't have a great understanding of how all that works because we have all these different examples and it's the mechanics of it is very opaque, I think. Uh, there is increasingly now kind of a, a community, particularly in Germany, devoted to reconstructing these bows and testing them. So that's an interesting avenue to see what that yields. So there's clearly some variation there. It's hard to know exactly how much. And then steel is the third type of bow that comes in the latest... Uh, and there's a huge variation in how steel bows are made. My PhD was mostly on looking at these changes, and the kind of tentative findings I had there were that in the 15th century, steel bows seemed to mostly resemble composite bows, and there wasn't a huge difference. And then from the 16th century on, we suddenly see this huge expansion in variety because steel is so much more malleable. You have tiny little bows, you have huge bows. You get these tiny little balestrini which are these like hand-sized crossbows made in italy that are entirely made of metal and are briefly they're banned in some italian cities they they call something called assassin's crossbows but there's no real evidence anyone actually assassinated anyone with them they seem more like the kind of medieval italian equivalent of like an air rifle they're little like they're fun things for shooting they are actually quite dangerous but they're not Actually, for killing people, so you have these tiny bows that are like the size of your hand, and then you also have these huge bows that you know could weigh 10 kilos, uh, like the whole crossbow would be about 10 kilos, and then that's kind of they're mostly for target shooting, so you see this much greater variation. Uh, and then there's also the variation in spanning devices, which and how crossbows connect to them, which we see a lot of changes over the years, but again, kind of throughout the process with the crossbow. What I found is that instead of it being a kind of a new technology phases out an older one, certainly in, in the case of Europe, what we see is that it's just kind of more options added to the toolkit. So a lot almost all of these technologies coexist together. Some of them might end up being more popular than others, but very rarely does one become obsolete, at least until the 16th century when we see the kind of slow phasing out of crossbows and military use and the switch entirely to them being for sporting.
1: Mm. That's that's helpful to understand it. Um, I, I like the idea of thinking of it as kind of adding to the toolkit um, because it does seem like there's a lot of kind of additions and variation and really, I can't really think off the top of my head of any example that you gave of kind of, this is how it was done and then it all switched over to this instead. Um, So kind of thank you for taking us through that menu, I suppose. Um, And that kind of makes, in some ways, that raises the question because you demonstrate in the book that the crossbow is around, even as you said in the first answer, like it's kind of around earlier on in Europe, but then it kind of suddenly becomes this incredibly widely used weapon with lots of different variations um, around the 10th century. Why is that kind of the moment that the crossbow becomes such a thing?
0: that's kind of the million dollar question and when you're studying the crossbow is like yeah why why now and i think it must be a confluence of two factors and it's how to weigh those factors it's very difficult so one of them and the kind of most straightforward is just you know there's more evidence from the 10th century so we're just we're seeing more than we saw before so some of it must just be Better reporting, and we're getting better evidence, and we're having more description of the weaponry that's being used. But then it also does seem to just be more popular than it, than before, because it's not like there's no evidence in the early Middle Ages. Much as I, a late medievalist, like to make fun of the early Middle Ages and their lack of sources, uh, it's there. There is quite a lot of evidence, and we do know quite a lot about that period. And some scholars have, uh, I think, one of the Backracks. I'm forgetting which one—Bernard Backrack, David Backrack. Uh, anyway, so they have argued that probably it was in use in the early middle ages much more widely than we think. And so I've certainly suggested that it was in use in Carolingian armies, probably maybe Merovingian as well. Uh, Now that's largely kind of supposition. We don't have solid evidence for that. I would say that it's probably a combination of a greater central control. Crossbowmen are expensive is kind of a thing that we have to think about. Crossbows. Are not a weapon of the peasantry. They're they're quite expensive to make. They're quite uh, elite in a sense. They're not fully elite, but they're they're so they're not necessarily a knightly weapon, but they are a weapon of a more serious soldierly class. They tend to be associated more with urban militias and other higher paid military forces that have access to greater military. I mean, people like the Genoese mercenaries who are very famous, famous for being crossbowmen. That's you know an elite force that you hire, and so much like a lot of medieval warfare, you know, you get paid based on how expensive your equipment is. Crossbowmen had expensive equipment. So I think better centralized recruitment of armies, more money to pay mercenaries makes it more feasible to have better equipped soldiers like crossbowmen become more common versus if you're levying just who's around you, it's a bit, I would think it would be rarer. So that I think it's a confluence of those two facts, the kind of, greater central control over warfare and greater wealth possibly in urban communities that creates more crossbowmen and then as well just there probably were some crossbowmen in earlier eras and we're just missing them
1: hmm. that makes a lot of sense um and it is useful uh, I, I remember kind of getting to that bit of the book of kind of crossbowmen are expensive and going ah that clicks a bunch of things into place um so that's a kind of a very helpful way of organizing the information um i wanted to go on to then a bit of the book that personally I was actually quite surprised to see which was the inclusion of medieval art Um, I personally just didn't necessarily think about medieval art in the same realm as understanding medieval weaponry Uh, but you show that there's actually quite a lot we can learn about crossbows from medieval art um could you tell us a little bit about that
0: Yeah. I once joked with a friend of mine who also studies medieval weaponry that medieval weaponry is really just like our medieval weaponry and armor is kind of a sub-discipline of art history. That's like, that's where we really belong. We're more art historians in some ways, because for, for two reasons, I mean, for one, and I go into this book, I mean, these are works of art in a sense. I mean, if you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, they have crossbows, you know, the Wallace Collection in London has crossbows. These, and they're often highly decorated. These were, these were pieces of art in their own right. And then as well, when we have such a limited archaeological evidence, art is a great tool to understanding the crossbow and how it was used at the time. Now it's medieval art is of course famously a little bit wonky. I, th- I find it extremely endearing. Uh, I love medieval art. I love it more, the more I spend with it, the more I love it. But it isn't exactly, you know, photorealistic. But it is very useful for understanding the context that, that crossbows were perceived in and how they were used. So you have some texts, something like the Morgan Picture Bible, uh, which we all call the Morgan Picture Bible. The Morgan Library has like 13 picture Bibles, and they call it the Crusader Bible. But we all call it the Morgan Picture Bible, despite them. Uh, has some great images of uh, 13th century warfare, and you can see a lot of like, kind of glimpses in how, they, how the crossbow was used. But then also you get just like really surreal stuff. So I included an image of a dance of death, which has a man who's half a flower shooting his his bow at a bird. And so there's this great kind of play of like crossbows are very much a part of society. They're featured in their art. You know, we have to, we shouldn't just view them as these exclusively for soldiers, weapons of war that don't interact with the rest of culture. So I think it's, it's good to take kind of a more global view of this. And then as well, there's lots of interesting information you learn about how crossbows are used because what we have is, an object and crossbows are, you know, easier than some archeological finds to interpret their use. They are fairly, something that we have a continued legacy of. They have lasted to the modern age. So we kind of know how crossbows work. If you see a stirrup on the front of it, you can guess you probably put your foot in it, but art can provide useful hints about answering some questions. Like for example, one of the simple spanning devices is a belt hook, which is a hook on your belt. And what you would do is you would hook that on the string, and there'd be a stirrup mounted to the front of the crossbow, in front of the bow, and you put your foot in the stirrup. And the idea is that you use your legs to pull the string back because your legs are more powerful than your arms. It makes it easier to, to draw a more powerful weapon. But the question is, so you have this, you have a stirrup, you have a hook, you have a string. Do you crouch down and put the stirrup on the ground and then stand up and pull it into place? Or do you balance on one foot and... Put your foot in the stirrup and then push your foot down to pull the string in while balancing and the answer seems to be both both of them are depicted in medieval art i've seen slightly more balancing on one leg, but they're definitely both there so that's really interesting another one is things like the krannikin is this cranking device it's quite small for spanning crossbows and if i if you handed me a crossbow and a crannikin, by default i would probably hold the crossbow in one arm and then crank it with the other. But if you look at a lot of uh, medieval art, they actually put the crossbow on the ground with a stirrup sometimes and they crouch down and do it low to the ground. So that's interesting. That tells you that there's different ways of doing this, there's different techniques. Some of them maybe are more prevalent than others. So it provides this fascinating lens into how these were used. And then in addition to the kind of broader cultural context that you place them in.
1: It was fascinating. Um, I admit, I've seen a lot of the I've been to the Morgan Library, I've been to the Wallace Collection, I've been to the Met, um, and hadn't still really thought that much about it. Um, And the idea that kind of looking at these very stylized artistic representations, as you said, medieval art is wonky. um, And kind of what you can learn from that was a really cool kind of way to relook at a thing I was already familiar with. So I found that a really cool addition to the book so we've been talking a lot about the history of the crossbow, what a crossbow actually is made of, um, kind of when it was used and how we know that, etc. Uh, but the point of a crossbow is it is a weapon of medieval warfare. That is the actual point of it. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about how crossbows were used in military contexts?
0: Yeah, this is one of the things that I, I kind of tried to, to pick apart a bit. And I think this is, this is I mean, all of this is a work in progress, really. You're always kind of you find something like this that you could spend a lifetime on, you kind of end up, everything is is in flux. But this was an area I thought would be really worth trying to put some thoughts down on. And I came up with a couple of useful like, ways of viewing the crossbow. Um, so two kind of very useful ones were one of them is that when on the move for an army, a crossbow crossbowmen were often, used, and this interest surprised me because I didn't think of it this way, as a way of keeping other Armies at bay. So there's uh, Matthew Paris at one point says that crosswomen lead the way, and it's kind of indicative of several of many other sources that describe crosswomen as marching in the front of an army as a screening force to kind of keep other soldiers back until you can form up your proper battle lines and then you fight your battle. This particularly seems to be kind of a high medieval thing. I don't see it as much in the the kind of late medieval, at least in the Hundred Years' War, uh, where and then the Another variant of that that I have to credit, um, Steve Tibble's work on the Crusades really kind of drew my attention to this, was its role in the fighting march. So particularly in, in Crusader warfare, where there's this harrying force of light cavalry with horse archers who would ride up and shoot at the Christians and then ride away. And that was always a problem. One of the ways to, to deal with that was to have a constant source of missile troops. And crossbows are great for this because you would just wait until your, you know the horse archer rode close to you and then you'd shoot him first. And your shot's always ready to go. So you can just wait and wait and wait and get the perfect shot. So you have these, you kind of have accounts of Crusader armies having large numbers of crossmen to help them march to where they wanted to fight the battle without being exhausted by these constant harassing targets. So that was interesting. Another source for them was, another useful thing to do with them was to kind of weaken an enemy before a charge. So you see this this is something that the French tried and it didn't work for them at Court try, but they, they try quite a lot. And it does actually work pretty consistently for them. And for other people who try this, where you send your crossbowmen out, you sometimes they would also have crossbowmen. So first, you have a little duel to see whose crossbowmen are dominant. Generally, whoever has more of them will win. And then you shoot into the enemy lines to weaken them. And then that prepares them for the charge. This is something that I think gets forgotten when we talk about, say battle, the battle of Hastings. Uh, we have accounts that describe the crossbowmen marching in front, and then they would shoot into the shield wall to prepare him for the Norman charge. And so it's a way of softening up because a cavalry charge is at its best if your enemy is disordered. You know, the, the horse cavalry is not great against really tightly packed formations. So missiles are great for breaking those up and sowing chaos, breaking morale in preparation for a bunch of hor- you know heavy cavalry to charge into them and make the soldiers think that maybe they don't really want to stay here. This isn't the best place to be and this isn't worth dying for. Uh this somewhat I think we somewhat see this flip with the English in the Hundred Years' War, where they use longbowmen to actually provoke charges into their pre-prepared positions. So that isn't an area I really want to explore a bit more. Because so I don't think the crossbow completely loses that role in other conflicts, but we do see that there's variation. And again, I also looked a bit at the, the Baltic, where the Teutonic Knights would use crossbowmen when they would attack up rivers they would often hit fish weirs that they had to clear to sail up or just keep sailing. And then while you're clearing the fish, weir, obviously the local people don't want you to destroy the fish weir they've just built. So one of the things that crossbowmen could do is they could keep local militia at bay while the Knights destroyed the fish weir and then they could sail on. And that's of course, in addition to the main, one of the classic roles of crossbowmen. And one of the things I kind of de-emphasized a bit in the book is that people think of crossbows as for defending castles and they absolutely are for that. They're for defending castles. Defending, c- defending cities. But I did want to kind of refocus a bit and say, these are also a battle weapon. You know, like people in the Middle Ages thought of these as something to be used in battle. And we have to consider them as well as a weapon for battle. There's this classic dichotomy of longbows are for battle, crossbows are for sieges. And in practice, medieval commanders use both of them for both. And I think we have to kind of take that on board, take on like what they were doing in our consideration of the weapon.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, And the list of examples you've just given us kind of already illustrates the much, much wider range of crossbow use for military purposes than simply to shoot down from battlements. Um, So thank you for kind of excavating those and sharing them with us. Uh, And on the subject then of um, kind of myths about crossbows that turn out to not be true or not totally true, to what extent is it true that the Second Lateran Council of the Catholic Church in 1139 banned crossbows?
0: It's like sort of true. I always come <laughs> down very hard in, and certainly in like public discourse because I think when you say banned people have this real particularly kind of a general audience as a real concept of like if the if the church bans something it's like you know if the current government declares something illegal you know there's an enforcement there. It's like I mean the Second Lateran Council decreed a ban on the use of crossbows and bows in inter-Christian warfare so for one thing, huge carve out. Take as many crossbows on a crusade as you want. They're absolutely all for that. The other thing, though, is like nobody listened to that. No, no secular lord was going to go around arresting people for using crossbows. They loved crossbows. Crossbows were super popular. And the, the Lateran Council is full of these kind of bizarre bands. There's a lot of bits that are specifically clerically targeted that are much more effective because it is also part of the prosecution of clerical marriage and simony and, and these practices in the church but it also bans, like, I think, hawking tournaments, uh, fighting battles on like most days of the week. I think you're only supposed to fight battles on like Tuesdays and Wednesdays or something. <laughs> so it's it's got this loads of stuff that's you know very aspirational and rooted in this peace and truce of God movements. But no one is listening to that. You know, crossbows are widely used and they're going to keep being used. Uh, one of the things I like to point out is like, I mean, the Second Lateran Council had banned crossbows like 60 years before Richard the First is killed by one. Quite famously. Uh, so it really didn't work, you know? Uh, and it didn't work because people liked the crossbow. And the that noble lords were hugely fond of it. And this kind of co-myth that you see sometimes of that they banned it because any peasant could use a crossbow to kill a noble knight is like completely wrong. Because peasants didn't have crossbows. Nobles and you know urban elites had crossbows or could hire crossbowmen. Because the other thing is that a single guy with a crossbow isn't actually going to kill a mounted horseman. He's got one shot. If he misses, or if his shot goes wide, or if it gets caught on the knight's chainmail, that knight is on him before he can reload his weapon, and he's dead. What you need is you need, like, a hundred crossbowmen. Now we're talking. But, like, no peasant village has a hundred crossbowmen. The local lord has a hundred crossbowmen, and he loves them. So it's, it's... The church was clearly a bit against it, although we don't really see it. It's not a thing they keep picking up later. So clearly it wasn't the most important uh, part of that council. But in practice, I mean, it wasn't It wasn't banned in a meaningful sense.
1: That makes sense for a number of reasons. Um, I can definitely see why both the idea of banning it is not going to go over very well, um, and also that wouldn't make a lot of sense either. Uh, so thank you for busting that myth for us very effectively. Another area that I think, uh, wasn't a myth. It wasn't something that we thought was a myth, uh, more accurately, was the idea of crossbows being used in colonial conquest. We don't necessarily think of crossbows as a weapon relevant to um, those military conquests. Uh, And yet it was. And in some respects, it's, I'm sure it's partially because of the things you've just talked about, right? It was a popular weapon for people in charge. So as you've already demonstrated, you know, If the thing is working, why get rid of it just because you now have other options? Um, But I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a bit more about crossbows and their involvement in European colonial conquest.
0: Yeah, this was a really interesting one because it was it was one of the most interesting things I researched for this book. Because I had seen references in a few crossbow books where they mentioned that Cortez and Pizarro had crossbowmen. That was kind of it. Like that's the sole kind of, you know, one or two sentences tops. Mostly we're dealing medieval history, so we don't really care about this 16th century stuff. And one of the things I wanted to look at in my in this book was, you know, when does the crossbow kind of cease to be a relevant weapon? And it's sometime in the 16th century, you know, how late does it go? And I think I still haven't really found it, uh, although I did, a, I did a good effort, I think. But digging into the use in the Spanish colonial warfare was really interesting, and it kind of fit into... One kind of general trend, and then one bit that's very specific to that type of warfare. Generally, you see certainly in the up to maybe the mid-1530s, maybe 1540s, a tendency to have combined arms, crossbows, and arquebuses together. And you see this a bit in the early phases of the Italian Wars, France with French armies invading Italy, and then again, Spanish armies are fighting in that conflict, and then obviously they're the same kind of military discipline being used in the New World. So there is this belief in these kind of two weapons coexisting, at least in this phase of warfare. And I think it makes some sense. Crossbows have a greater reliability. You know, crossbows don't jam. They don't misfire, you know, unless they break, they're going to keep working versus gunpowder weapons are a little bit less reliable, particularly in the early days of uh, matchlock arquebuses. Um And then crossbows would also often be a bit faster to reload than an Arquebus. You know, if you have a, because is the gunpowder will slowly foul the barrel so you have to keep, it gets harder and harder to reload the more you use it unless you keep cleaning it out. And that means you have to stop and clean it. So crossbows have, again, that kind of consistent reliability of missile fire. So having them together kind of makes sense. You kind of got the best of both worlds because Archibuses are significantly more powerful and more lethal. So you have a slightly more reliable weapon that shoots a bit faster and then a slightly more lethal weapon. So it, or a significantly more lethal weapon. So it's, it makes sense as a tactic. And you see that in contracts for Conquistadors in the New World that crossbowmen and archibusters were paid the same. They were, they were given the same share of spoils for their conquests. So they were clearly on equal footing in a status level. Like they were seen as the same tier of soldier. But they seem to stick around more in the new world. We definitely have more evidence for Pizarro using them. And then I talk a bit about Orgelana and his journey down the Amazon, where he has crossbows with him. And that's even that's kind of mid 16th century. And I'd suspect that if I, I kept digging, I would find more later references. You know, this was not really my field beforehand. I had a, I had consulted with someone I know who's an expert in the area, so it really helped me. Great, because when you st- this is an area that's difficult to step into, because you're when you're dealing with, you know, these the colonial wars, you're dealing with mass scale genocide and war crimes, and I was like, I want to be very careful that I, I don't mess up. So that was very good to have that advisement. But I think if I kept digging and I had more time, I'd, I'll find, and I probably will do this. I think as an interesting article in this idea of crossbows and colonial warfare. But so the other advantage is that crossbows don't need gunpowder, which you know is obvious, but gunpowder is heavy. The, the further you're getting from your supply lines and from your base, the harder it is to maintain that stock of gunpowder and the smaller your band is, the less capacity you have to carry barrels of gunpowder. And then as well, once you run out of gunpowder, your arquebus is now a big stick, right? It's a big metal stick, so it's a decent club, but it's it's not a projectile weapon anymore. The crossbow, you can if you've got wood and maybe a bit of metal or even a big stone, you can make bolts. You can keep shooting with your crossbow. You know, it's a much more DIY weapon. It's easier to make on the go to, you know, use on the move. So if you're going to be stuck in the Amazon for 6 months trying to find your way out, it's a better weapon to have. So it makes sense that it continues to be popular in that context where they're much further from the source of gunpowder, which is in Europe. So I, I kind of it's very logical that they would keep using the crossbow for, for quite a bit longer because it really fits that period in that place.
1: That, that's what I immediately went for is like, ah, then you don't need gunpowder. Okay, that simplifies things, um, particularly because then you don't have to worry about gunpowder getting wet, um, which makes it relatively useless. Um, But it it is interesting. I I do kind of wonder what else might be out there if you do go digging further. (laughs) Um, So that kind of, I guess, moving on to my next question uh, is unfortunately less related to investigating uh, medieval warfare in this sense. Uh, And I say sadly, because that is one of my particular interests. Um, But there was another thing in the book that I personally didn't know really anything about. Uh, and I'm guessing there's probably a lot of people who don't. So I was wondering if you could tell us about medieval crossbow guilds.
0: Yeah, these are really interesting. So, And if this sounds interesting, I, r- I write about it a bit in my book, but Laura Crombie wrote a book for Boyd Allen Brewer that's about medieval crossbow guilds in Flanders, and it's phenomenal. So that was one of the first books that really turned me on to it. That, and then I've kind of at I attended IMC recently. I talked to several scholars who've been researching them all over. They're actually quite a, a European-wide phenomenon. So... Guilds, I think we tend to think of guilds as, as people who make things, or like, you know, it's kind of you know, the Baker's Guild, the Candlemakers Guild, that kind of thing. The crossbow guild isn't really a guild in that sense, that they're not it's not a guild of crossbow makers. That would be a separate guild. It's uh, more of a shooting club. So there's there's also archery guilds and who do practice with bows, and then there were later um gunpowder guilds, so archibuster guilds. And it was for social elites in urban environments Uh, they're very popular in the low countries and northern italy and parts of france and switzerland and so anywhere that have a a large concentration of cities they're extremely popular but you do find them in slightly less urbanized areas as well but if you've got a big city there's going to be crossbow guilds generally and they're they met up to practice shooting and then to compete in shooting competitions both in the city itself so usually there would be at least one big competition in the year where everyone would compete locally. And then there would also be intercity competitions that were taken very seriously and were a way of earning significant pride for the city. And these were very high status individuals for the most part. It was a great way to network, to get your climb society to join the crossbow guild and you would meet various important people from around your city. They're important enough that when the Dukes of Burgundy were taking over Flanders, they, some of them participated in shooting guilds with crossbow guilds. One of them joined a guild Officially, like, you know, as he joined his membership, I think, in Brussels. And so there are these very interesting, socially important things. They're also a great source for mercenaries and soldiers. So locally, you would see them used for things like policing actions, going out and dealing with bandits. They would have some responsibility. They would have responsibility for defending the walls if they're under attack. And you get this kind of double-edged sword for local rulers because you have this ready crop of people who are very skilled with the crossbow. Because even though these are really social institutions in a way they did take target shooting very seriously. They did practice. They had to maintain their weapons. So you have this kind of body of men you could recruit who are very good with crossbows. The downside is you're also filling your city with a bunch of really skilled crossbowmen. And if you're in one of these areas like Flanders that is prone to revolt, that becomes a problem because suddenly it gives slightly more opportunity for the city to go, well, we don't actually want to do that. And now we have, several hundred crossbow men. So we're going to close our walls to you and it's going to be a lot harder to deal with us. So it's, it's a bit of a back and forth. And so you say some, some Lords really like to promote them. Charles the Seventh uses them as a source of recruitment for his armies at the end of the hundred years war in France. So there is an element of encouraging them for recruitment there, but they're also should be seen within their own urban context is very part, important part of the social fabric fabric of the city. And, some cities would even have two of them. They would have like a major guild and a minor guild, so you could be in like the big posh guild or the slightly less posh guild. but they're, they're really fascinating phenomena. and I think it's an area where there is more research going on as well. I know there's at least one researcher who's looking at them in the Holy Roman Empire right now in kind of the late 15th, early 16th century. So it's and they keep going after into the 16th century and become more focused on just the target shooting once the crossbow military military role fades away. So um, yeah, they're really interesting phenomena. The famous painting, The Night Watch, kind of pictures one of those groups several centuries later. So if you know um, Rembrandt's The Night Watch, that's kind of of a good visual image to see what these guys were kind of like.
1: Cool, well, I imagine there's probably lots of people looking that up right now. Um, So thank you for mentioning it so that people can have a visual reference. You've mentioned throughout the interview, um, a number of areas that would be really interesting for further research, sort of things we don't know about yet, or things that we know a little bit about, but there's probably more to investigate. Um, And given kind of your position of knowing this field really well and understanding kind of what we do and don't know, um, I was wondering if just not necessarily what you think the best one is, because that's deeply subjective, but maybe the kind of yet-to-be-answered question about crossbows that you're most intrigued by?
0: I think so. the one I'm most intrigued by but probably isn't the one I will be able to answer because uh, I think it requires a slightly different skills that I have to what I have is I think our understanding of the chronology of the crossbow is an area that's ripe for shaking up. We talked a bit about you know our debates around the early origins of the crossbow and the kind of link to China or not. I think even down to when certain spanning devices are invented and introduced, when certain crossbow styles become common, and even when we're dating physical crossbows that we have, I think it's it's an area that is really worth sitting down and looking at and re-examining in more detail. I think that's a space where we have a lot of crossbows that have been dated independently by very qualified museum curators. I think pulling a lot of that evidence together and looking at that, I think if we find more crossbows in archaeological digs, it's something that crossbows are extremely rare in situ. So this is kind of the key problem to actually get down to it is we have lots of crossbows in museums now, but it's very rare to find a crossbow where it originated. There was crossbows were very popularly traded throughout history, particularly popular weapons trade in kind of the early modern 19th century by collectors. So lots of crossbows are very far removed from their original context So we don't have, we kind of have to date them against each other to kind of try and figure out how old they are, but we have very few crossbows that we can reliably say this was made in these, you know, 10 years. So it's, it's quite a flimsy structure to be basing our, our dating on. And there's very little that's been found in the ground, you know, in a context that we can say, oh, this is, this is definitely, you know, the 1260s or something. So I think that's an area, if I was to predict an area that I think we could fundamentally change our understanding of the crossbow in the next 30 years, I think the chronology of the weapon and when these technologies come in and when certain devices are invented, that's a great area for change. But I think that's a a big collective piece that, you know, would be many archaeologists and researchers working independently coming together with their own findings. For me, my own little one that I'm most excited to get back to and look at is I really want to get back to the 16th century. And when was the last time a crossbow played a major role in a military conflict? Because so that was something I tackled. And so I looked at the, the Conquistadors as part of that. I looked at the Great Siege of Malta, which I kind of stuck in there a bit as the big climax in the book, because the Great Siege of Malta is, is fabulously interesting. And the role that crossbows play in it is great. And so it kind of makes the most, like, if this was a movie, that's, like, the narrative love conclusion that it would be at the Great Siege of Malta. But realistically, it's later than Malta. I mean, there's a there's at least one re- reference to a crossbow being used in Lepanto. There's probably more of them. And so it's it's sometime in the late 16th century would be my instinct, but maybe it's very early uh, 17th, which would be really exciting. So that to me is like I would love to to go back, and I, I intend to to kind of go back and start picking apart that a bit more, and seeing. I mean, then you have to get into definitions. I mean, what's what's a major military conflict? You know, because there's the German soldiers in World War One who looted a crossbows from a museum in Flanders and modified them to shoot grenades. Yeah, but, but that's it's like, a museum. Yeah, so
1: like that, by that was from a museum. That doesn't really count.
0: And it was like three guys. So it's not yeah. like, it's not really like a defining moment in world war one, you know, it's like a weird aside.
1: And it wasn't really, uh, presumably organized down the chain no. of command.
0: I did see a great um, world war two. I think it was, in, I think it's in a museum in New Zealand, but I think it was from uh, somewhere in Indonesia or, or New Guinea. Someone had, like, it was a crossbow that someone had built out of entirely wooden crossbow to shoot like little um, round grenades which was like super cool to see, but like these are but also you know, minorities, the tiny little you know, bits of the war that don't have any ground impact. I want to see like crossbows that made a difference in a, in a major military engagement. When's the latest one we have? Is it Malta? Yeah. Is it later? And well, so- I, I think that would be
1: fascinating. Yeah. So that's um, what
0: I'm uh, hoping to do. We'll see.
1: Is that your next project then? Or are you working on uh, something
0: else? I'm working on some, I'm taking a little crossbow break mm-hmm. for the moment.
1: All right. What are you working so, on now,
0: then? So I'm returning to one of my other great loves, which is the Hundred Years' War. And what I, what I want to do is my kind of longer-term project is I want to write a, a book about the Bureau brothers, Jean and Gaspar Bureau, who are masters of ordnance for Charles VII and eventually generals in Charles' army. And there's a really interesting story of people of kind of mercantile background who rise through the ranks of the new army of Charles VII and are masters of artillery and play a very instrumental role in the end of the Hundred Years' War. So they're they're interesting. They're kind of I think them and the end of the Hundred Years' War is a really interesting story, but it's it's quite a, a long project. So what I'm doing in the meantime is I'm writing a book about the Battle of Castillon. Is what I'm working on now. So Castillon's fa- final battle of the Hundred Years' War. There is not an English language history of the battle, which is shocking stuff to me because it's definitely more consequential than Agincourt. And John Bureau is the com- one of the commanders in charge of the French at it. So it has this nice like. The research is double purpose, so I can use it for this Bureau project I want to work on. And then uh, I also would like to try my hand at writing kind of a classic battle history. So that's that's what I'm doing to take a little break from crossbows. But I'm definitely always going to be coming back to crossbows and working on them again. So I've definitely got some some smaller ideas, some article ideas to, to work at when I find time. But it'll be a little break before I do anything book length, I think, God. on crossbows Whoa. again.
1: I must admit, I'm glad that there's no English language history of that battle because that forgives the fact that I know very little about it. Um, so clearly I will have to learn and hopefully I can learn from your book. So that will be good. Um, and I definitely think there's going to be interest in figuring out when the last time crossbows were used sort of intentionally, I suppose. Um, that was certainly a question I kind of had from the book of like, oh, that would be an interesting thing to know. So it sounds like you've got a lot of very cool projects um, to work on. Um, So we will let you do that. We will release you back to work on things uh, and finish up this interview with a reminder to the listeners that the book we've been primarily talking about um, is titled The Medieval Crossbow, A Weapon Fit to Kill a King uh, from Pen and Sword uh, in 2022. Uh, Dr. Stuart Ellis Gorman, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.